I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to another mini-episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and these mini-episodes are ways for me to tell stories that made big headlines, but aren't necessarily historically significant. Or sometimes they didn't make the headlines, but they should have. In today's case, the headlines were huge. Hundreds of newspapers had printed an initial version of the story by the end of the first day, and many thousands of newspapers wrote about the story before it was all over. Now, it's no surprise that I love mysteries and crime and old murder stories. I share a lot of those things on here. Today's story falls nicely into that category. Maybe some of you listening out there might even remember when this happened. If you do, reach out and let me know. Or maybe you've read about it recently. The Southern Voice website retold the story just last year, and I've taken a lot of today's information from that article. Today's main headline comes from the front page of the Fort Lauderdale News. This headline was printed on December 17, 1968, and it says, Two Youths Kidnap Girl. Friends, this is the kidnapping story of Barbara Mackle. If you've never heard this story before, I will tell you that one newspaper described it as, quote, perhaps the most bizarre kidnapping in the annals of crime in America. In 1968, Barbara Mackle was a tall, brown-eyed, brown-haired, 20-year-old student attending Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She had grown up in Coral Gables, Florida, as the daughter of Robert and Jane Mackle. Her father was a very successful land developer in Florida, and he was a millionaire in an age when that was still a really big deal. At the time of Barbara's kidnapping, he was building a luxury resort on an island off the southwest coast of Florida. Well, during Barbara's junior year at Emory University, a pandemic started sweeping through the world. It was called the Hong Kong flu, and millions of people were affected by it. Unfortunately, the flu hit Emory University pretty hard, and Barbara was one of the unlucky ones who got sick right as semester finals were taking place. Barbara's mother drove from their home in Florida to Georgia to help take care of her daughter. And since the school's infirmary was full of other students, Jane and Barbara got a room at the Roadway Inn in nearby Decatur, Georgia. The pair made plans to take it easy until Barbara felt well enough to travel, and then they would drive back to Florida together hopefully in time for Christmas, which was rapidly approaching. All of their plans came to a screeching halt when they suddenly heard a knock on their hotel room door in the middle of the night on December 17, 1968. Jane opened the door just a slit, but left the safety chain on. Two young men stood there. They identified themselves as police officers, and one of them was even wearing a police cap. The cops told Jane and Barbara that there had been an accident involving a white Ford driven by Stuart Woodward, Barbara's boyfriend. Obviously, that kind of information upset the women, and Jane undid the chain on the door to let the men in. But instead of giving more explanation, the pair pulled out weapons and forced their way all the way into the room. They quickly used chloroform on Jane to subdue her, 
and then dragged Barbara out of the room and into a Volvo that was already running and waiting for them outside. Barbara later said that the kidnappers kept threatening to chloroform her too, but since she was sick and congested, she begged them not to and promised that she would cooperate with whatever they wanted. They drove Barbara to a rural location northeast of Atlanta, to a place they had already been planning and preparing. Despite her protests, they did end up using chloroform on Barbara before placing her in a wooden box that was buried in the ground. The box was seven and a half feet long and three feet wide. It was only three and a half feet tall, though, so she couldn't stand up. The box was lined with fiberglass, and it did have some sort of light inside. They provided her with a blanket, a sweater, a fan, a little bit of food, and a little bit of water. Although the drinking water had been laced with sedatives. The kidnappers also left a pump inside the box, just in case it started to fill with water. There were two hoses sticking out of the box above ground so that she could still get air. Before closing the box, the kidnappers put a sign that said, Kidnapped in her hands, and made her pose for a picture. Barbara later said that she forced herself to smile so that her father wouldn't worry that she'd been hurt. I'll share that picture in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group. She really did do a great job of making it look like everything was just fine. Anyway, after the picture was taken, the kidnappers sealed off the box and then covered it with a foot and a half of dirt. Barbara screamed and screamed and could tell that the sound of the dirt being thrown on the box was getting farther away, meaning that it was getting deeper. But still she screamed. And then the kidnappers walked away. Barbara was left all alone in the middle of nowhere, buried alive. I can't even imagine the terror she must have felt. It's definitely one of the scariest situations imaginable. Meanwhile, back at the roadway inn, Barbara's mother Jane was starting to wake up. Except her hands and her legs were bound and her mouth was covered in tape. She managed to hop to the hotel room door and get it open and then hop out into the parking lot where one of the employees at the hotel saw her. She immediately called the police and then she called Stephen Woodward, the friend that the kidnapper said had been in a car accident. Stephen called Barbara's father, Robert who told him to immediately call the FBI. Because of the Mackles family wealth, and the fact that the kidnappers knew who Barbara's friends were, they knew right away that the kidnapping had been planned well in advance, and that they weren't just a random target. Robert Mackle jumped on an airplane as quickly as he could and left other family members home in case the kidnappers tried to get in contact with them there. And then he contacted a friend of the family for a little help someone you might have heard of before. Someone named Richard Nixon. He was president-elect at the time, due to be sworn in as president of the United States in just a month from that time. And when Nixon heard about his friend's predicament, he called up J. Edgar Hoover himself and told J. Edgar that he wanted him to personally head the investigation. Sure enough, just as everyone expected, a request for ransom came in. But the way the request was received made the case even more bizarre. The kidnappers called, and they told the Mackles that they would find a note buried in their backyard. And there it was, 
the three-page note rolled up inside a test tube was buried in their yard exactly where the caller had said. The kidnapping plot had been carefully planned for a very long time, and Barbara was not a random grab. The kidnappers had done their research, and they knew exactly what they were doing. The kidnappers demanded $500,000 for Barbara's release. In today's money, that would be well over $4 million. The kidnappers told Robert Mackle that he had to carry all of the money in one suitcase and that he had to leave it somewhere by the seawall of Biscayne Bay. If he didn't go alone, he would never see Barbara again. If he agreed to the terms, he was supposed to put a personal ad in the Miami Herald that said, quote, Loved one, please come home. We will pay all expenses and meet you anywhere at any time. Your family. Robert did as he was told, and he followed the instructions exactly. He was told to put the $500,000 in $20 bills into a suitcase and leave it in the bay. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the last part meant, and the newspapers didn't give a ton of details on it. But considering the next part, I think the money was literally put into the water. Anyway, Robert Mackle made the money drop, made sure he'd followed all the instructions, and then waited for the kidnappers to retrieve the money and tell him where they could find Barbara. But things didn't go quite as planned. The huge front-page headline of the December 19th edition of the Miami News said, Mackle ransom payoff flops. Police stumble on kidnappers. The article writer admitted that at the time of printing, they didn't have all the details, and there were two versions being passed around. One version said that someone saw something suspicious out on the water and called the police to come check on it. When the police arrived, they saw two men and gave chase. The second version said that the cops just happened to be stationed in that area, shooting the breeze with each other, when they saw the two men walking by, carrying a suitcase and a gun. Either way, the men ditched a boat and some scuba gear, and they started to run. One of the men fired at the officers, and the officers fired back. The men dropped the suitcase, whether on accident or on purpose, I'm not sure, and managed to get away from the cops. Robert Mackle was not happy at all. He immediately sent out a plea through the newspapers and insisted to the kidnappers that he had nothing to do with the cops being there, and it was just really bad timing. He also insisted that he wanted to do business with them, and for them to please contact him again so that they could try once more. He was sure that they can make it work the second time around. The police, of course, and the FBI didn't waste any time using the clues that had just fallen into their lap to try to track down who was behind the kidnapping. They started with the boat that had been left on the shore, and after a little bit of research, they figured out it had been stolen from the University of Miami Institute of Marine Science. They also found out that the padlock to a shed that held gasoline was sawed off during the night and the robbery of the boat. They also found another key bit of evidence that the kidnappers left behind when they ran. A Volvo station wagon with Massachusetts license plates. It was assumed that they were going to get in it and drive away when the cops came upon them and they had to run instead. Things were starting to get a bit tricky in the investigation, though, and nobody knew for sure how many people were involved. Barbara's mother described the men who tied her up and took her daughter 
as a man of about 25 and a boy who could have been as young as 12. The police who saw the suspects said they were both white males, about 5'10". One looked to be around 25, and the other looked to be around 40. And he was heavyset, with dark hair. The day before the chase, a city worker had seen a pair of people leave the Volvo in that spot. Except he said one was a white male that looked to be about 25, and the other was a dark-haired woman that looked to be about 20 years old. Obviously, the 25-year-old was staying the same, but who were all of the other accomplices? The police were able to trace the station wagon back to a man named George Deacon. He was 28 years old, and he'd been a researcher at MIT until a couple of months prior to the kidnapping when he decided to move to Florida, hence the Massachusetts plates on the car. The authorities were unable to find George Deacon right away, but they started interviewing people at the University of Miami Institute of Marine Science. Because guess where George's current job was? Yep. He worked for the same institute where the boat was stolen from. His co-workers told police he was a technician working on submarine geology. And he was an accomplished scuba diver. Remember how I mentioned that the two suspects who ran from the cops dropped their scuba gear in pursuit? Yeah, it was just one more clue that led to George Deacon. The FBI quickly went to George's house. He lived in a trailer park, and of course they couldn't find him there, but they surrounded the area with police tape and started searching for clues and interviewing neighbors. One neighbor said that Deacon had had a wife and kids, but they'd been gone for weeks. Another neighbor said that he seemed to be a bright person, but he was bitter and he was envious of those with wealth. He hated that he lived in a trailer. With a definite suspect in mind, the police set up roadblocks on highways and on side roads. They sent personnel to bus stations and train stations and airports. It was a massive effort, and everyone hoped that that effort would bring Barbara back. Then, just as the Mackle family had hoped and prayed, a second ransom request came in. This time, the call came to the family's priest and instructions were given to leave the money at the end of a dirt road. The drop was made, and that time it was successful. With the money in their possession, the kidnappers called the Atlanta FBI office and told the woman that answered the phone that they would give the clues to find Barbara exactly one time, and then they started firing off the instructions as fast as they could. The poor woman wrote as fast as she could, but the instructions were so vague that there were at least four intersections that match the description. Every available agent in the vicinity was immediately dispatched to the area to look for the missing co-ed. They searched through Georgia pine forests and on hillsides and scuffed their feet as they walked, hoping to spot something that looked out of the ordinary. Suddenly, one of the searchers spotted red clay that looked like it had been freshly overturned. And then he spotted a ventilation pipe. He and his partner began screaming out Barbara's name and yelling into the ventilation pipe for her to knock or yell if she was in there. Inside the burial box, Barbara was yelling and knocking and trying for all she was worth to let them know that she was there and she was alive. The FBI agents dropped to their knees and began digging with their hands. One agent used a tree limb as a shovel of sorts, and another agent found an old bucket that was full of bullet holes probably something someone had used for target practice out in the woods, and he used it to haul out the dirt. 
The men's hands were bleeding by the time they reached the screws holding the lid of the box on more than 10 minutes later. Someone ran to the road where cars were parked and came back with a tire iron that they then used to pry the lid off. 83 hours after she was buried alive, Barbara Mackle was pulled from the underground chamber. She was weak and she couldn't walk, but the first words out of her mouth were, how are my parents? In an interview a few days after she was rescued, Barbara said they were all crying, even the big, tough FBI agents. A few minutes after she was pulled from the ground, J. Edgar Hoover himself called Robert Mackle at his Florida home and told him that they had his daughter and that she was alive. And then he cried. Meanwhile, back in Florida, someone called the FBI when a man paid for a boat rental in cash using all 20s. He said he was going to take the boat to Bimini, and something about it just seemed suspicious. Another person let the FBI know that a man with the same description had been buying maps on how to get to Mexico on the Gulf Coast. With the Coast Guard in the air and on the ground, it wasn't long before George Deacon was spotted. He abandoned the boat he'd just purchased, left $480,000 in cash behind, and disappeared into the swamp. Locals and FBI agents alike took to the swamps in pursuit, and it wasn't long before he gave up and they were able to take him into custody. He had the rest of the money on him. So, who was George Deacon's accomplice? Well, it's definitely not who you think, and it shows just how much witnesses' descriptions can vary in a case. It turned out to be 26-year-old Ruth Eismanshire, a woman from Honduras that worked with George Deacon at the Marine Institute and was described by some as his girlfriend. The small woman had been mistaken as a young boy by Barbara's mother during the kidnapping because her face had been covered in a ski mask. Barbara got a glimpse of her right before they buried her in the box, and she knew it was a woman, but she wasn't around to help. Five days after the kidnapping, Ruth made history when she became the first woman ever to be added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Since she couldn't be found, some people believed that George Deacon killed her before fleeing so that he could have all the money to himself. But, spoiler alert, Ruth was very much alive, and it didn't take too much time for the FBI to catch up with her, too. She was sentenced to seven years in prison, and then when she was paroled, she was deported back to her home country of Honduras. And that brings us to what happened to the mastermind behind the kidnapping, George Deacon. It turns out that George Deacon was actually 23-year-old Gary Stephen Christ. So why did he change his name? Well, that's because he'd been lying about his credentials, and he had escaped from a California state prison two years earlier. He'd never been a researcher at MIT. At his trial, Gary Christ was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. But, as we all know, sentences don't always last as long as they should. Gary only served 10 years behind bars before being paroled. And not only that, he was allowed to go to Granada and Dominica to pursue a career as a medical doctor. No, I'm not making this up. He attended and graduated from medical school and started working as a general practitioner in southern Indiana because they didn't have the same restrictions on convicted felons in the medical field as some other states. Don't worry, Gary's career as a doctor didn't last long. 
Since he didn't disclose some information about disciplinary actions, his license was revoked just two years after it was granted. Then in 2006, he was arrested off the coast of Alabama when 38 pounds of cocaine and four people from South America who had each paid him $6,000 to be smuggled into the U.S. were found on his sailboat. He was sentenced to five years and five months in prison, but he was once again paroled early. In 2012, he violated his parole when he left the country to sell to Cuba, and he once again got sent back to prison. I guess some people just never learn. Gary Christ is nearly 80 years old now. Let's hope his life of crime is finally over. Barbara Mackle went on to marry Stuart Woodward, the boyfriend the kidnapper said was in a car accident at the beginning of this story, and they had two children and lived in Florida until Stuart passed away in 2013. After the kidnapping, President Nixon told Barbara she should write a book. So she did. And that was pretty much the last time she spoke publicly about her horrible ordeal. Friends, thanks once again for joining me for this mini-episode today. Barbara's kidnapping was definitely bizarre. If you want to reach out to me for any reason, you can email me at additionalhistory at gmail.com or pop into the Additional History Headlines You Probably Miss Facebook group and leave a message there. I'll be back again this Monday with an all-new, full-sized episode. Talk to you later.